This hearing will uh, come to order. Uh, I want to apologize to the witnesses for uh, the, the vote uh, that is kind of making this a little bit uh, discombobulated right now. Uh, I'll be starting making my comments, uh, then uh, asking you for your testimony. Senator Markey is voting on the second vote now. Uh, he'll be joining us, making his statements, coming back after that, and then I will leave and go make the second vote. So just to, but we don't want to delay the hearing any further. Thank you very much for your understanding and starting this a little bit late to begin with. Um, let, me all welcome, let me welcome you all to the eighth hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and international cybersecurity policy in the 115th Congress. This hearing will be the first hearing in a three-part series of hearings titled The China Challenge, and will examine how the United States should respond to the challenge of a rising China that seeks to upend and supplant the US-led liberal world order. The Trump administration has been clear on the scope of the problem and gravity of the challenge before us. According to the national security strategy for decades, U.S. policy was rooted in the belief that support for China's rise and for its integration into the post-war international order would liberalize China. Contrary to our hopes, China expanded its power at the expense of the sovereignty of others. According to the National Defense Strategy, the central challenge to U.S. prosperity and security is the reemergence of long-term strategic competition by what the National Security Strategy classifies as revisionist powers. It is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic, and security decisions. An opinion editorial in the Wall Street Journal last week noted the following. Xi Jinping has proclaimed that China has both the intent and capability to reshape the international order. Yet much of what passes for Chinese global leadership to date is simply the pursuit of China's own narrow interests. He has yet to demonstrate the key attributes of true global leadership, the willingness to align and in some cases subordinate Beijing's immediate interests to the greater global good, and the ability to forge a significant agreement around a global challenge. The question before us now is identifying the tools the United States has at its disposal to counter the disturbing developments posed by China's less than peaceful rise. This is why Senator Markey and I uh, and a bipartisan group of co-sponsors uh, in the Senate joined in introducing the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, on April 24th. The legislation sets a comprehensive policy framework to demonstrate U.S. commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific region and the rules-based international order. ARIA provides a comprehensive set of national security and economic policies to advance U.S. interests and goals in the Indo-Pacific region, including providing U.S. substantive, substantive U.S. resource commitments for these goals. I'm joined in this legislation on the committee by Senator Kane, Senator Kuhn, Senator Cardin, Senator Markey, by Senator Rubio and Senator Young, as well as Senators Sullivan and Purdue and Graham. This legislation has broad unanimous support. On June 4th, the Wall Street Journal editorial board endorsed ARIA, stating, Congress is trying to help with the Bipartisan Asia Reinsurance Initiative Act. The Senate bill affirms core American alliances with Australia, Japan, and South Korea, while calling for deeper military and economic ties with India and Taiwan. It notably encourages regular weapons sales to Taipei. The Chamber of Commerce has also endorsed ARIA, stating, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce supports the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act of 2018 and thanks Senator Gardner for his efforts to strengthen U.S. strategic and economic relationships across the Indo-Pacific region. Particularly with regard to the legislation's economic goals, we appreciate the bill's focus on closer trade ties, stronger protections for intellectual property, and a renewed focus on trade facilitation. 
We look forward to working with Senator Gardner and the Congress to advance these important objectives. On June 21st, we received a joint letter from the State Department and the Department of Defense formally endorsing ARIA. The letter, which was signed by Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mattis, states, we value the ARIA's legislation's reaffirmation of the United States security commitments to our Indo-Pacific allies and partners. Furthermore, ARIA's focus on promoting stronger regional economic engagement and its support for democracy, the rule of law, and the development of civil society is especially welcome as part of a diplomatically-led whole-of-government approach to the Indo-Pacific region. I ask unanimous consent. I'm going to ask uh, myself. Here. <laughs> we'll, put this in the, uh, we'll put this in the record, uh, um, the, the, both the letter uh, as well as the uh, editorial. Uh, I expect the full committee to mark this critical legislation up in the coming days, I hope, and hope for its quick passage by the full Senate in the near future. Uh, when Senator Markey joins us, we will turn to him for his opening comments. But I want to welcome both of our witnesses here today. Uh, our fir first witness is uh, Senator is, is, uh, Dan Blumenthal. Almost uh, gave you a demotion there, Dan, uh, who serves as Director of Asian Studies and Resident Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mr. Blumenthal has both served in and advised the U.S. government on China issues for nearly two decades. From 2001 to 2004, he served as Senior Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the Department of Defense. Additionally, from 2006 to 2012, he served as a Commissioner on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, including holding the position of Vice Chair in 2007. Welcome, uh, Dan, welcome Mr. Blumenthal, for, uh, and thank you for your time and testimony and being with us today. I'm going to go ahead and go to the next witness and stall just a little bit more, uh, if we can, for Senator Markey. Our, our second witness today uh, is uh, Eli Ratner who serves as the Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for uh, a New American Security. Mr. Ratner served from 2015 to 2017 as the Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, and from 2011 to 2012 in the Office of Chinese and Mongolian Affairs at the State Department. He also previously worked in the U.S. Senate as a professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and in the office of Senator Joe Biden. Welcome, Mr. Ratner. Welcome back to the committee. Thank you for being here. And Mr. Blumenthal, we'll go ahead with your opening statement. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Gardner, and um, thank you very much for your leadership on, on these issues and with the bill that you've been working so <clears throat> with your colleagues so fastidiously on and, and, it, and so glad that it's getting some uh, the press it deserves and hopefully the support within the, the Senate that it deserves as well. Um, <clears throat> what I want to do in my uh, short time, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions, is first Number one, put in context Chinese course of practices uh, in, in its grander strategy, uh, then focus on some of the most targeted countries of Chinese course of practices, including the United States, uh, and then turn to some actions we might take both to defend ourselves but also to uh, be a little bit more proactive against the Chinese Communist Party and its coercive economic practices. And I do think we have a lot of leverage there. So uh, no surprise to anyone who's been following uh, the subject. Uh, the uh, party secretary general of the Communist Party and President Xi Jinping is following uh, a very robust grand strategy of the China dream of national rejuvenation, rejuvenating uh, the nation to become, again, the Middle Kingdom, the center of international politics and perhaps international uh, economics as well. Um, and uh, he's doing a number of things to effectu effectuate this, this China dream, uh, building up a world-class military, of course, is, is, is known to everybody who follows this topic, uh, which has uh, 
proceeded to to advance its unlawful claims in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and increasingly now uh, does operations in India and further afield in in, in the Gulf. And that, that military is a big part of its economic course of strategies as well. Um, <clears throat> so the military is one tool. Economic uh, coercion is another tool of, of this grand strategy. Uh, we're waking up slowly to political warfare, political influence operations uh, that seeks to build support in target nations for Chinese policies, or at least defend Chinese policies. Uh, United Front Tactics, the Confucian Institutes, uh, that a lot of the, the things your colleagues have focused on as well. So economic coercion, though, that's the topic of, of, of the day. Uh, I, I have to state that the era of reform and opening in China is over. It's been long over. It's been over probably for 10 years. And China is back to being run by state-owned enterprises that are related to the party. The, the private sector is diminishing. That provides the Chinese state with a lot more control over economic coercive policies. Some of, the, some of the economic policies we don't like here in the United States are not necessarily coercive. They are predatory. It has to do with the mass subsidization of Chinese state-owned enterprises that make it uncompetitive for U.S. or other firms to compete with. It has to do with, uh, which has caused great dislocations inside the U.S. and other countries' labor markets. It has to do with uh, that right theft, of course, of intellectual property and trade secrets. That's theft. Uh, the coercive aspects, I think, uh, when you talk about the United States, is the targeting of specific businessmen and uh, businesses in order to do Chinese bidding. So, uh, for example, in the latest uh, round of tariffs with respect to what we've levied on China, uh, the first thing that someone like Xi Jinping does is call in U.S. business uh, friends to get them to go back home and lobby against any policies, whether you like them or not, that, that he doesn't see in their interests. And if, if you do abide by them as a U.S. corporation or, a Euro, or a European corporation, you will probably get favorable market access. If you don't abide by them, then, then you won't. So tar the, the targeting of, the specific targeting of U.S. businesses that China thinks can have influence in the U.S. political system is a major tool. China uses that same tool uh, very much against Taiwan, which is kind of ground zero for Chinese economic coercion. And here I would say it's military and economic coercion. So military is used to demonstrate to Taiwan that, that the Chinese, if they want to, can cut off Taiwan completely, its economic lifelines. Taiwan's an island nation and completely dependent on seaborne trade. The Chinese constantly exercise the ability to cut off uh, their ability to... to uh, to exercise that seaborne trade. They also target Taiwanese businessmen to go vote for parties in, in uh, Taiwan that they think will be more favorable to China uh, and, and uh, are constantly uh, cyber attacking, even just harassing uh, Taiwanese businesses, uh, as well as tra attracting talent away from the top Chinese tech, uh, Taiwanese tech companies. Uh, I'm running out of time in my opening statement, so let me just go through. Uh, Japan's another big target. Again, it's military and uh, economic. Uh, we famously woke up to this in 2010 when there was a fishing dispute, and China decided that it was going to ban uh, the export, uh, exports of rare earth materials. Uh, that were key to Japanese, the Japanese economy. 
that woke up uh, the, the markets, and there was a market response to that, but China has shown that it will continue to do so. It did the same similar activities with respect to the Philippines in a dispute over the Scarborough Shoal. Not only does it use its military and quasi-military to cut off uh, Filipino and Vietnamese uh, fishermen from using uh, uh, fishing zones that it, 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 it that they are lawfully allowed to use, uh, but also started to ban uh, imports of important agricultural products from those two countries as well, uh, <clears throat> and they're dependent, very dependent on those, uh, on those exports. They've cut cables of exploration ships. Uh, they've um, <clears throat> they've announced unilateral fishing bans, and they just continue to put overt uh, military and economic pressure on. Uh, country's uh, exclusive economic zones. Since I am out of time, let me quickly just offer a few ideas about how to fight back against this. Uh, I, think, I think we have to be more directive against what the CCP, what the Chinese Communist Party, cares about the most and not use more scalpels rather than, <clears throat> than big jackhammers. So CC, the Chinese Communist Party has favored state-owned enterprises that are part of patronage networks. Could certainly ban some of those from accessing the U.S. market and the European market. Those are the two markets that matter the most. The U.S. consumer still fuels uh, the Chinese economy. Um, ban the ones that are the worst offenders in intellectual property theft. Ban the ones that have benefited the most. Ban the ones that are closest to the party. Certainly, we should consider, in terms of escalation, how much party elites want their kids to come here to study. And I'm not saying ban all Chinese students. I'm saying if you want the party to stop acting in certain ways, go after what they care the most about. So if we identify party elites, uh, uh, children, and, and, and so forth, and, and they want to come into the United States, we can, we can certainly uh, uh, take a second and third look at their visas. Um, let, me I, do, let me just stop you right there, yeah. if I may. Mr. Yeah. I think you can probably get into more detail uh, when we get into the question and answer period. So let me just stop you right there so we can begin with uh, Mr. Ratner. And again, Mr. Rat Eli Ratner is Vice President and Director of Studies Center for a New American uh, Security. We welcome you, sir. Um, whenever you're ready, please begin. Great. Uh, Senator Markey, uh, Senator Kane, uh, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. Um, let me start by thanking Chairman Gardner and the other members of the committee for your efforts to reinforce America's enduring commitment to Asia. Uh, I'm encouraged to hear that the, the bipartisan Asia Reassurance Initiative Act will be marked up by the full committee. Uh, it's an important piece of legislation, and, and I share Senator Gardner's hope for quick passage by the full Senate. For the purposes of my opening statement today, I'm going to focus on the increasingly common and consequential phenomenon of Chinese economic coercion whereby China is using economic punishments against governments and firms or threats thereof to advance its foreign policy and domestic political goals. My home institution, the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, released a report in June that represents the most detailed and comprehensive study to date on this phenomenon. I would encourage interested members and staff to read the report in its entirety. The report examines how Beijing is using economic coercion to advance its illiberal, authoritarian, and revisionist aims by employing a vast array of coercive economic tools, including import restrictions, popular boycotts, pressure on specific companies, export restrictions, limits on Chinese tourism, investment restrictions, and targeted financial measures. Beyond the immediate economic costs, these actions are having a damaging, chilling effect on the world. 
Facing the specter of Chinese retaliation, countries are less willing to stand up to China, and US allies and partners are increasingly reluctant to work with the United States on certain diplomatic, economic, and military issues. In terms of how best to respond, my written testimony provides a dozen specific policy recommendations for Congress. Here are a few highlights. First, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee should hold hearings on the costs and benefits of rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Rejoining TPP is among the most important things we can do to advance our economic position in Asia and erode the effectiveness of China's economic coercion. By contrast, U.S. withdrawal has done substantial damage to our standing in the region and is facilitating the development of a Chinese sphere of influence in Asia and beyond. Rejoining TPP would renew confidence in the credibility and commitment of the United States, help to reroute supply chains in the region, open new markets for U.S. companies, and ultimately reduce China's economic leverage. It would also provide a mechanism for coordinating with allies and partners to combat China's predatory policies. Second, Congress should pass legislation to constrain President Trump's ability to levy tariffs against U.S. allies and partners on specious national security grounds. The United States will be far less successful if we attempt to address China's coercive actions on our own. Instead, we should be working closely with allies and partners, sharing information on Chinese activities, coordinating on trade and investment restrictions, and rerouting global supply chains. Unfortunately, the Trump administration's tariffs against some of our closest allies and partners have diluted attention away from China's predatory practices and made it far more difficult to coordinate on the China challenge. Third, we have to engender the focus and political will to enhance U.S. competitiveness. Bolstering our own national strength and staying at the cutting edge of technology and, and innovation are essential to reducing China's coercive capacity. This will mean continuing to support increases in basic research, investing in education, pursuing responsible fiscal policies, developing strategic visa and immigration policies, and generating a bipartisan consensus on the importance of rising to this occasion. Succeeding in the China challenge is ultimately about us, about our own national competitiveness, not just taking defensive measures to deal with China's predatory practices. In this context, I also support bipartisan legislation co-sponsored by members of this committee that mandates the administration to publish a national economic security strategy. Fourth, the effectiveness of China's economic coercion is based in large part on perceptions and often misperceptions of China's ascension and American decline. This leaves a vital role for greater US public diplomacy, information operations, and strategic messaging to expound the strengths of the United States and to cast a more skeptical shadow on certain elements of China's leadership, government, and economy. My written testimony includes several recommendations for Congress in this area, including reconstituting a 21st century version of the U.S. Information Agency, augmenting resources to the Broadcasting Board of Governors to bolster China-related content, carrying out Congress's essential role in publicly criticizing China's economic coercion, and providing resources and directing the Department of Defense to develop means to circumvent China's great firewall and to make it easier for Chinese citizens to access the global internet. Fifth and finally, we need to develop a stronger toolkit of our own to blunt and deter Chinese economic coercion. Cong Congress can play a leadership role in limiting China's leverage over key nodes in the world economy by developing regulations and export controls that build diversity and redundancy into critical supply chains. Moreover, Congress should call upon relevant U.S. departments and agencies to develop sharper retaliatory tools to deter and impose costs on Chinese companies in the interests of relevant Chinese government officials. In short, 
as China deploys more sophisticated, nimble, and offensive tools of economic statecraft, so too should we. Senator Markey, I'll stop there and look forward to your questions. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here today. Okay, great. And uh, we thank both of you for your testimony. And because of the roll calls, I was not able to make my opening statement, which I will do here for a few minutes, uh, awaiting the return of the chairman. And then we will begin the question and answer period. For good reason, Congress has spent considerable time working on the threats from North Korea lately. But for those who follow the Asia-Pacific region closely, and increasingly for those who do not, China has become a significant strategic challenge that demands our attention. We are witnessing a growing Chinese willingness to bend and break longstanding rules, rules that the United States helped create in an effort to spread peace and stability across the globe in the wake of devastating world wars. Rules that created a level playing field and allowed the ingenuity and productivity of American workers to flourish, creating high-paying jobs and expanding our economy. Unfortunately, the Chinese government is undertaking coercive activities across the board, economically, militarily, and politically, that threaten to alter this playing field in China's favor. So, as Chairman Gardner mentioned, we intend to hold a series of hearings on what these developments mean for the United States. And today we are focusing on the Chinese government's coercive activities in the economic realm. There are good reasons why we should be closely following these issues. The Chinese government has used this economic coercion against our allies and partners undermining U.S. foreign policy. And it has targeted American companies directly threatening the livelihoods of American workers and expropriating American innovation and ingenuity. Taken together, these actions are eroding the principles of the international rules-based system in an un, uh, unprecedented way. For example, the Chinese Communist Party is directing targeted economic pressure against smaller countries to achieve specific diplomatic goals. It has even been bold enough to target American allies. In response to an alliance uh, effort to defend South Korea, from North Korean missiles, China began an economic pressure campaign targeting the South Korean government and people. This months-long high-profile campaign reportedly caused the country more than $15 billion in damage. Dollar fingers like that tend to change minds, and this blatant coercion should concern us all. And this is not an isolated incident. China has used similar measures against other U.S. allies like Japan and the Philippines, and I fear that we will only see more of this activity in the future. It also is using economic pressure to persuade countries to isolate Taiwan diplomatically and attempting to compel com uh, companies to refer to, tai uh, to Taiwan as a part of China. According to media reports this morning, U.S. airlines are expected to cave to the Chinese Communist Party's demands for them to refer on their websites to Taiwan as a part of China. Many foreign airlines have already capitulated. And through its Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, China is burdening countries receiving infrastructure loans with debts so extreme that they begin to undermine their own very sovereignty. According to a recent New York Times report, uh, this Belt and Road uh, initiative amounts to a debt trap for vulnerable countries around the world fueling corruption and autoc autocratic behavior in struggling democracies. The Chinese government also is targeting U.S. and other foreign companies in its bid to acquire technology 
that China deems strategically important for its economic development. The list of American companies on the receiving end of China's ever more aggressive economic coercion is long and growing. In one example, American Superconductor, an energy technology company from my home state of Massachusetts that produces chips for wind turbines, partnered with the Chinese company partially owned by the Chinese government, which then stole its intellectual property and used it against them. These practices have victimized numerous other companies in Massachusetts and across the country, including many that do not want to be named for fear of retribution by the Chinese government. This must stop, and the American government must help protect American businesses from being bullied by China. And while the administration has sought to counter some of China's efforts through tariffs, there are broader strategic objectives that we need to keep in mind. Across the board, these coercive measures hurt companies and their workers, damage our international relations, and create vulnerabilities. And they damage the international system that keeps peace and stability. This is not about making China out to be the enemy. And it is not, as China likes to complain, about constraining China's rise, but rather, it is about all countries following the rules of the road, because these rules give every country, including China, a chance to prosper and compete from an equitable playing field. So it is of the utmost importance that we stand up for the interests, principles, and values that we care about. There is no place in the modern world for powerful countries coercing others, whether they be smaller neighbors or companies trying to provide for their workers. There simply is no room for the old ways of might makes right. We must ensure that we protect U.S. economic and security interests, as well as the broader international system that has helped provide peace and stability across the globe. The United States cannot afford to cede leadership on this issue. So I thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the witnesses have completed their testimony, and we're ready to begin uh, a round of questions. Thank you, Senator Markey. And again, thank you both for your time and testimony today. And I thank the members for uh, their uh, time in participating in the committee. Uh, Mr. Blumenthal, you, you mentioned uh, in your opening statement, you talked about the economic opening in China being over. Could you, could you go into a little bit more detail of what you mean by that? So <laughs> the period of reform and opening, which Deng Xiaoping began in 1978 and allowed for the great growth of of China, the great growth of the private sector, private sector entrepreneurs, and brought so many Chinese out of poverty and benefited the world, uh, ended probably 10 years ago. The, the Chinese, we now know, the Chinese have uh, gone back to the state sector dominating, taking out uh, room for entrepreneurs to grow. They've gone back to things like uh, price controls. They've gone back to things like uh, lending on the basis of non-market uh, non-profitable uh, lending, but rather through patronage uh, from uh, the party to state-owned enterprises. They certainly haven't moved any further uh, than they were 10, 12 years ago on market access, uh, things that uh, we've been pressing for. They haven't stopped subsidizing. In fact, they've doubled down on subsidizing their state-owned enterprises, which is probably the single biggest cause of, of Chinese, of, of probably the 
WTO stalling as much as it has. And Xi Jinping is, is certainly not taking China down the road of another round of market reforms, quite the contrary. He's, he's uh, statist and, and favoring state-owned enterprises and the subsidization of state-owned enterprises over the private sector. It was the first opportunity I had uh, through the, the committee to visit China, I think, in 2015. And uh, while I was there, I met with a number of U.S. businesses. In those conversations, these U.S. businesses said, uh, just give, give China more time. There's just a little bit more time than, uh, than, than now to see if the reforms will work. And I think you've said it's been about 10 years now where those reforms quit and, and kind of went back. They've gone back to uh, some of the bad actions of the past. I don't hear the same thing from American businesses today. I don't hear give them time, just wait a little bit longer. What I hear now is that the U.S. needs to act on uh, the predatory economics. Uh, you've also talked about coercion. Could you, could you explain the difference between sort of coercion and predatory economics? Sure. So the, the Chinese economic system in many ways is, is set up to be predatory uh, without necessarily trying to fulfill... Uh, a geopolitical uh, a geopolitical imperative. So when I talk about coercion specifically, I'm talking, uh, for example, about trying to stop uh, U.S. tariffs, to take an example right now. So call in U.S. businesses. Xi Jinping calls in CEOs of U.S. businesses and says, if you don't get the Trump administration to stop these tariffs, your businesses will pay. They can't do business here. We will squeeze them out. That's coercion. Uh, the same thing, the same thing with Taiwan. If if you Taiwan CEO don't go back to Taiwan and vote for a more pro Beijing party, you can't do business here. That's coercion. That's trying to that's trying to uh, obtain a geopolitical objective. The predatory nature of the Chinese economy is is just inherent and structurally in the system. The uh, state-owned enterprises and the state banks. Uh, you know, lend on a predatory nature, on a non-profitable nature, uh, and the subsidization that, that, that they rely so heavily upon in China in order to export is, is causing uh, structural stresses in the world trade system. So I, I think that's how I divide it up analytically. Supports so in something like Sri Lanka would be predatory economics. Uh, in that case, it, it, it could be both. So, so if, you're, if you're setting up, uh, it's predatory in the sense that that uh, Sri Lanka needs the funding for the port, and they'll get favorable terms at first from the Chinese, uh, but then the Chinese will come back and, and call for something in return, like access to a port. Um, it can be coercive if the Sri Lankans don't actually deliver that port, and they can put more, more and more pressure on the Sri Lankans politically to, to deliver. So in, in the, Sri Lanka is a case, uh, a lot of the BRI cases are, are cases of both, a uh, confluence of, of both those strategies. And I mentioned before that I don't hear from U.S. businesses just wait a little bit longer to see if these reforms take effect. But yet, as Senator Markey mentioned in his opening dialogue, we do see coercive efforts by uh, China on U.S. airline companies trying to get them to change their websites, a, a word on a website, uh, toward uh, as it relates to Taiwan. And so that's a coercive, a co that's a, a, a coercion tactic, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. That, the, the target there is, is isolation of Taiwan using U.S. businesses 
as a proxy to get at Taiwan. And what's the ultimate consequence if U.S. businesses like U.S. airlines start capitulating to China and their demands uh, over changing their website? Where does it, what, what, that's not the end of it, right? It continues, there's something else, there's something more. On Taiwan, there's a multifaceted course of strategy. It involves military coercion that constantly exercises to demonstrate to Taiwan that if they want to, they can cut their economic lifelines off uh, from ports and increasingly in the airspace. They're trying to wipe Taiwan off the mental map of all of us, and that's what they're doing with airlines and other uh, types of companies, as well as uh, websites and uh, trying to get uh, the State Department and others to constantly constantly fighting with them over what uh, how to mention Taiwan, the Olympics. What they want to do is wipe Taiwan off the map as a separate entity. I know in both of your statements you talk about, uh, you make recommendations for policies that we could put in place that would help uh, help the United States address uh, the rise of China. And as Senator Markey said, the, the goal is not to try to make people choose between friends, but to have multiple friends to have uh, in a system that actually abides by international uh, norms and uh, rules of the road that we all agree to. Uh, and so I look forward to getting into those uh, recommendations a little bit more. Senator Markey. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Mr. Ratner, where are we in this trade war? Um, just help us to step back and get a perspective as to where this is likely to lead. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture today uh, announced they're planning to announce uh, to announce $12 billion in emergency aid for farmers that were hurt by President Trump's escalating trade war. Uh, and obviously, there's going to be a line of other industries, employees, who are going to be showing up looking for aid as well as part of this war. We might as well call it kind of a, a trade defense budget. You know, uh, you, you need a whole defense budget here. It's not just going to be for the ag sector. It's going to be for every other sector, steel, aluminum, you name it, all the way down the line uh, are industries affected by those um, uh, industries who are all going to be looking for some help. So can you talk a little bit, Mr. Ratner, where you see this going in the, uh, uh, and what the end game is from your perspective? Sure, Senator Markey. I mean, I think the, you know, the direct answer is I think we're about 20 years into this trade war. So this is not something that Donald Trump started. This is something that China started decades ago. And, and I don't, agree with all the ways that the Trump administration is going about dealing with this problem, but I do think they should be commended for highlighting it, and uh, business as usual was not going to work. So uh, it is important, I think, and, and one of my critiques of the Trump administration is that it was a serious mistake for them to lead with the Section 232 tariffs against our allies and partners because it muddied the message of uh, Chinese predatory practices, and that's what we should be focused on as a country in terms of our economic strategy as we're, as we're thinking forward. That's what the Trump administration should have been talking about from day one, and, and I worry now that the message is very confused with both the American people uh, and the international community in terms of where the China economic challenge and China's predatory practices So you're, you're saying instead of um, imposing tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum, that actually hurts uh, many sectors of our economy, um, that instead the president should have been focusing around China right from the very beginning. Is that your point? That's absolutely right. The term that I use to describe the Trump administration's uh, China policy is that it's confrontational without being competitive. 
that tariffs are quite confrontational, uh, but there's a better basket of tools that we could be using associated with high standard rulemaking, investment restrictions, export controls, public diplomacy, sanctions against particularly bad actors, uh, investing at home, rerouting supply chains, coordinating with allies and partners. There's a whole suite of economic policies we should be making here to be more competitive with China. That's what we should be focused on. Okay. Now, do you see any threat that this economic trade war could spill over into national security areas as well? It depends what you mean by that, sir. I think part of the uh, part of what the Trump administration. Well, we need you know yeah. we need the Chinese for cooperation on many national security issues. Do you think this could reduce the uh, likelihood that there would be cooperation where the United States is looking for it uh, most ardently? I think we may see issue linkage. Certainly, both President Xi and and President Trump have drawn sub such issue linkage. I think one of the questions is what is the goal of the Trump administration here, and they haven't articulated that. There are folks inside the in the president himself who talk about trade deficits. There are others who talk about restoring American manufacturing. There are others who talk about tech transfer and intellectual theft. And then there are others who talk about that the goal here is not actually to get a deal that makes our economies more inter interdependent, but one that leads to less dependence between us, that sees interdependence as the problem. So I think one of the reasons why I like the idea that Senator Young and others have talked about, about a national economic security strategy, is that it would force the administration to be clear about what its aims are and then put forward a strategy to achieve those aims, because we haven't heard that yet clearly from the Trump administration. So, um, again, do, do, do you think that in the absence of that, that we could just wind up with a never-ending cycle of increased tariffs from both sides um, that ultimately harm the global economy, perhaps, uh, while not, in fact, achieving the result which the president says that he is aiming to achieve? Well, again, I don't think we know what, what the result is exactly, but certainly tariffs are a blunt instrument. They raise prices for uh, consumers and businesses, and they invite retaliation, uh, and I don't think they're necessarily going to achieve uh, the types of concessions from the Chinese on their industrial policies or their, their economic model that some are talking about. So to me, there's, they're, they may be part, a small part, of a broader economic policy, but they should not be the central tool of our economic approach to China, which should be predicated on a more competitive strategy by the United States. Um, so in terms of what the Chinese did to the South Korean economy after the um, deployment of the THAAD system, uh, hitting it to the tune of $15 billion, what does that teach us about China? And it's relationship with national security issues from their perspective in terms of linking economic uh, sanctions to as a response to those national security issues? Well, I, I think what it teaches us, Senator, is that China is going to use its economic clout to try to achieve its geopolitical aims, which include dividing American alliances and, and eroding the influence of the United States in the region. So I think that was a very important episode. It was very revealing. I think. Um, we can talk about trying to incorporate China into a rules-based order. I don't think that's where we're going to be in the next several years. I think what we have to do is, is pull up our socks, get more competitive, slow down Chinese momentum in, in its efforts to develop a sphere of influence. That's a much more urgent task than a long-term goal of developing a rules-based order. All right. You know, looking at uh, what happened in the Singapore summit, there were reports before Singapore 
that uh, the Chinese had already increased trade with North Korea, and then there were comments coming out of leadership inside of China that uh, they could now increase trade uh, because of the quote-unquote success of the Singapore uh, summit. How do you view that? How do you view the Chinese in terms of their use of trade or withdrawal of it as a, as a tool uh, in their relationship with, um, with the United States, South Korea, uh, but more with the, the North Koreans? Well, to link this question with your earlier one, I, I tend to believe that China's behavior vis-a-vis -vis North Korea is predicated on its own narrow interests as it relates to the peninsula and its geopolitical interests. I don't think they're going to be more or less cooperative on North Korea as a result of U.S. trade policy. Um, in general, I think they have, uh, they may share the hope in the long term of denuclearization of the, of the Korean Peninsula, but I don't think they're particularly interested in any kind of instability that might come along with that. So I tend to think they're, they're gonna, they've been looking for any opening to get where we are today, and they're gonna push in that direction and, and, and essentially support the United States and the Trump administration when it's in their interests and oppose it when they're not. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Young. Well, I thank our witnesses for being here today. Mr. Ratner, uh, thanks for your testimony. As I reviewed your written statement, uh, you seem to be making a pretty simple argument with very serious implications. In short, you seem to be saying we're in a high-stakes uh, competition with China uh, that China does not accept uh, this rules-based international order we had hoped to welcome them into back in 2000. Uh, the legitimacy of that order and the institutions that were stood up uh, to oversee that order uh, are not respected by China. China instead respects power. Um, and uh, we as a nation uh, have insufficient leverage, it seems, to be able to affect the sort of change we want with respect to intellectual property theft, joint licensing requirements, uh, dumping, and so many other things. What we lack um, and, and this is language you employed, is a comprehensive strategy. Is that a fair summary of your viewpoint, Mr. Ratner? Uh, yes, Senator. Well, I, I appreciate your reference and your prepared statement uh, to my legislation, and I, of course, would welcome my colleagues' co-sponsorship. I already know that uh, Senator Gardner is, has signed on to the National Economic Security Strategy. Um, you've you've uh, called on Congress to pass this legislation. Why specifically do you believe Congress should pass this legislation? And why do you believe the administration should produce a national economic security strategy? Senator, I, uh, my answer would be twofold. First, clearly uh, the economic dimensions of the geopolitical competition are only becoming more important. And I think as we think, you know, it's, it's common to say now that we're seeing the return of great power politics. The role of economics in the strategic competition will be greater, I think, than they were in the past for a variety of reasons, uh, in no small part because that's at the leading edge of, of Chinese power and influence. So that's where the United States needs to, among other areas, but rise to this challenge. So the economic component is very important, and it's a particular area where our government is not well configured institutionally, and where this particular administration is not coordinating particularly well. And if we're going to get serious about this, we're going to need the government with a coordinated strategy where the different elements are working together and at, toward the same purposes. So is it fair to say that you believe that uh, this legislation and the requirement that uh, this and future administrations produce a national economic security strategy would catalyze 
critical thinking across different departments of government, they would come up, they would synthesize uh, their different priorities and objectives, um, and, and that would lead to a coherent and cohesive uh, whole of government economic strategy uh, that uh, would, would advance our national interests. I think it could certainly help, Senator. I'll, I will say to your last point, I am at times disappointed when the Trump administration is taking actions that don't represent its national security strategy or its national defense strategy, which I think are actually quite good documents. So it doesn't solve the problem in and of itself, but having served in the White House and worked closely sure. uh, with the National Security Council, these planning processes are incredibly important for the kind of coordinating mechanisms you're describing. So, uh, but any infirmities that might exist in the strategy would then be exposed uh, for lawmakers, academics, uh, and critics alike uh, to remedy uh, in a classified setting uh, where uh, classified uh, annex would be required for the security strategy. Is, is, is that how you see this? Yeah, and frankly, I think there are new tools that the United States is going to need. So this is not just the process of digging up and putting together uh, cobbling together old parts of our strategy. I think we need these processes to bring together the foreign policy and security dimensions of our foreign policy apparatus with the economic and finance dimensions, and that's not something we do well. I will say again, in my time at the White House, uh, in my role as Deputy National Security Advisor to the Vice President, I attended the Deputies Committee meetings. There was an economics pillar to those that were run by an entirely different group of people than the normal national right. security process, and it led to relatively incoherent policies at times. And those things, those worlds need to be brought together, and, and this type of strategy process is one way to do that. Well, what I find coherent in, say, the national security strategy um, uh, is, is uh, how they have, have been able to, uh, through an established process, uh, look across the State Department, Treasury, uh, Department of Defense, and, and other agencies of government, uh, their handiwork is synthesized uh, within the National Security Council, and that's what we envision, uh, working uh, hand-in-glove with the National Security Council and the National Economic Council, doing a similar sort of thing on the economic front. Would there be a signaling function by production of a, and a national economic security strategy? That is, a signaling to our adversaries about what precisely our policy is, and to the American public, who I find consistently asking back in Indiana, whether they're farmers or manufacturers or others, what's the plan? I think that's right. I think, and just to inverse your, your question to make the same point, I think the lack of coordination, as I say in my testimony, I think invites Chinese economic coercion because they see those divisions. And I think it makes it harder for companies that are under the duress of Chinese economic coercion to, to stand up for themselves because when they look back, they're not sure anyone's behind them standing firm either. So both for uh, our folks and for our uh, competitors, I think it would send an important signal. Thank you. Mr. Ratner, in your prepared statement, you write, quote, the United States should be working with, not alienating, allies and partners to address the China challenge. Now, look, I, I acknowledge that uh, our trading partners um, could um, could give some with respect to their policies uh, related uh, to trade, uh, other economic policies, regulatory policies. Um, but our differences are marginal in, in comparison to the state capitalist model that, say, China uh, has adopted. So why do you believe uh, we need international partners uh, like the Europeans, uh, like 
the Canadians, for example, in addressing China's economic uh, coercion, despite the fact that we may have some differences with those partners? Well, there are multiple functions that we can do uh, to address Chinese coercion and some of these predatory practices with our partners. One, of course, is sharing information and intelligence, which is a key part of this effort, and then coordinating on things like investment restrictions. For instance, if there were a company from Indiana, uh, whether it was a high-tech company uh, that was trying to be bought by a, by a Chinese company and, and CFIUS or its successor were to block that, if, if the Chinese could then just go to the Europeans and buy a similar technology or a similar company, then, then your company in Indiana would lose out from that. So I think to, to maintain our connect competitiveness and protect our IP is going to be a team effort with our allies and partners. It's not something we can do on our own. And there's additional leverage as well, which is a, a related point uh, to yours, right, as, as we try and, 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 and bring China uh, closer to what we would consider good behavior or a fair trade model, um, enhancing our leverage uh, by joining together uh, with the Europeans or, or uh, our, our Asian uh, friends and trading partners uh, might make sense. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? I would agree with that. And when it looked like the United States was going to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership and that agreement was going to pass, the Chinese were starting to ask questions quietly at senior levels with American officials about what they would need to do down the road to improve their practices to uh, join that agreement, and obviously those conversations are no longer happening today. So lastly, Mr. Chairman, if I could uh, just follow up on that. I noted that one of your recommendations, uh, Mr. Ratner, um, in, in your testimony was rejoining TPP or finding a way into uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I commend uh, the President of the United States for having indicated that he was open to that prospect uh, in the last State of the Union address. Um, when I was in the House of Representatives, I co-chaired the transatlantic, the, the TTIP uh, caucus, uh, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership Caucus. And I wonder, should the United States, to gain more leverage, in addition to the economic benefits, also be vigorously pursuing TTIP negotiations um, in parallel with, with some of these uh, other efforts? Uh, yes, Senator. I think if we were part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and we knitted that together, with TTIP, we would be in an extremely strong position in terms of our economic competitive position toward China, and we wouldn't be having these discussions today. Thank you, sir. Senator Merkley. Thank you, Senator Young. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Adner, under WTO, is, is China allowed to offer subsidies to its businesses? Uh, Senator, I'm not a trade lawyer, so I can't get into the weeds of WTO law, but, uh, but I think the answer is no, and there are several other dimensions in which there are not in, a, not in compliance with the agreement. Under the WTO, uh, China is required to do an annual report of all of its subsidies to different enterprises. Does it do that report? Uh, I believe not, Senator. So uh, when it fails to do the report, we, we are under the WTO allowed to do a report on their subsidies. I did an amendment a few years ago that said if China doesn't produce their report, our trade representative will be directed to produce our report. And uh, before that amendment, the ink could dry on it. Our trade rep uh, under President Obama produced a list of 200 Chinese subsidies, subsidies we were well aware of, but, but, but rarely kind of articulated. Uh, so that's, um, so we certainly have an understanding of massive Chinese subsidies that are not allowed under WTO. How about uh, to offer uh, uh, loans to non at non-market rates? Uh, I believe not, sir or to provide land for free as a, as a form of subsidy? 
I think that's right, as well as forced technology transfer and a number of other practices. And how about re being required for our companies to be required to locate in a particular part of China where the infrastructure is inferior to other locations? Correct. Uh, a couple of years ago, when I was uh, part of a, a delegation to China, uh, we were at a meeting of the U.S. Chamber of, of Commerce uh, in which uh, many of these practices was, were highlighted, but one company in particular stood up and said, uh, and I, I won't name the exact company because they probably didn't want it too much publicized at the time, but they said they were basically told, we have to put our manufacturing center in this far western city, far from the, the port infrastructure. We are told we cannot build any size of uh, item. Uh, that is in direct competition with the ch Chinese items. They were told they only could build larger versions that the Chinese weren't yet building, or they, they would be shut down and shut out of the country. Is that type of activity by the Chinese legal under the WTO? No, sir. And uh, what about requiring American companies to do uh, joint venture arrangements in order to be able to uh, locate in China? Also uh, not part of the agreement. So, and you're familiar with how these joint venture agreements are often used as a way to drain U.S. technology? Yes, sir. So what does one say to the American citizen who says, China is violating all of these rules, and the WTO we, we has no mechanism by which we appear to be able to hold them accountable? What's, why, why shouldn't we work intensely to create an ability to hold China accountable to the structure of the WTO. I think that was the intention of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I, the, the WTO was written at a different time. It, it was never designed for uh, this type of state-led mercantilist power, and it was not designed around investment issues and other uh, e-commerce issues and, and IP issues that we're facing today. So certainly need for an updating, but again, uh, I think the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was the institutional answer to many of these shortcomings. Well, perhaps we can have that debate another day, because I, I don't share your opinion on that. But um, turning back to the flaws in the WTO, what is the average Chinese tariff on our manufactured goods? I don't know that off the top of my head, Senator. Um, is, are you familiar in general that, that their tariffs are significantly more on average on our manufactured goods than our tariffs on theirs? They are absolutely uh, much, much higher. I think the fact that, again, uh, this is not well known uh, among the American people or in the international community is a shortcoming of our uh, public diplomacy and communications on this issue. And I think we need to think about how we can do a better job of telling this story domestically and internationally. But absolutely, there, there's clear data on uh, this particular finding. And the Chinese are continuing to use a lot of state-owned enterprises as, a, as a, a strategy to provide subsidies that are rather hidden. So under the WTO, if China engages in these practices and says to our companies, you have to be part of a joint venture, why don't, why don't we say, well, China, you want to locate in the US? You, get, you have to be part of a joint venture. Why should, why should we give them such easy access when they're putting up such uh, fierce um, obstacles to our investments in China? I don't think we should, and I think these, these types of reciprocal rules would uh, be fair and, and would likely cause them to change their practices in certain ways. I think the fact that they've been get, able to get away with these kinds of practices for so long and take advantage of our, our open markets is, is what all of us collectively are 
are trying to solve here, but I think a principle of reciprocity is a great one to apply to this problem. In my various trips to China, I've seen China with bicycles, I've seen China with cars, and now I've seen China with bullet trains. Massive new metro systems being built across the country, roads, bridges. Uh, meanwhile, they're investing massively in defense. Uh, they're proceeding to buy up strategic minerals around the world. They're proceeding to buy into a lot of companies in the United States. Is China eating our lunch? <laughs> I don't think they're eating our lunch. I think they are, uh, you know, one of the things that I like to remind folks, and, and I know you all share this confidence, and I put in my statement, is that we ought to keep reminding ourselves that the foundations of American power are strong. And the reason why, if they are eating our lunch, I think we are losing this strategic competition among almost every parameter of the, uh, whether it's economic or military or informational or ideological, is primarily because we're not competing. I think if we got our act together, we'd be doing just fine. As long as our market is very open to the Chinese, and as long as they can pay wages that are much lower than ours and have environmental laws that are virtually non-existent or non-enforced, isn't it always going to be pretty much cheaper to, for manufacturers to move their manufacturing to China or to other states that have similar low wage, low enforcement, low environmental standards? I think that's right, which is, again, uh, sounds like we have differences about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but one aspect of that was to increase labor standards and environmental standards and, uh, and otherwise so as to uh, prevent countries from be being able to race to the bottom and to level the playing field for American workers. Well, just as a reminder, we were giving Malaysia access, which has some of the worst labor standards in the world. But that's a conversation for another day. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Merkley. And uh, uh, this discussion on the TTIP and TPP, I think, is a, uh, very important because I think we've laid out a lot of concerns we have with Chinese uh, predatory economics, Chinese coercion, uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, market access requirements. Uh, there were reports uh, several months ago about requiring certain people to be in the chain of command of a business the, that's located in China. Uh, obviously, technology transfers are a part of it. Uh, and that's, that's, that's how you know, the administration responded through, uh, that's why the administration responded through, at least in part, uh, the tariffs that it has. But I believe a more appropriate action would have been to get global communities, uh, like-minded interest allies together uh, through Trans-Pacific Partnership and other uh, trade agreements uh, to uh, put pressure and isolate China. Do you agree, Mr. Ratner? Absolutely, Senator Gardner. I think that's the, that's the path forward. I think from a strategic perspective, it's, it's the obvious solution. From a political spec perspective, it's more difficult, but uh, this one's a no-brainer. Mr. Blumenthal? Um, I just have to correct a few things on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, free trade is, you know, mostly to the good, but it, it would do nothing on Chinese course of practices. We have a free trade agreement with South Korea, and yet it was the target of some of the harshest course of practices uh, in in Asia. Um, the TPP is is gone. It's in and it's becoming kind of an excuse. Uh, to, to do nothing else. We have to take on Chinese course of practices directly in ways that hurt the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and we know how to do that. We have enormous leverage over China. China is stagnating as an economy. China is dependent on the U.S. consumer. I, I hope we don't go full bore into a tariff war, but they will lose because they export more than we do. Um, so, you know, the answer to everything nowadays seems to be the TPP, 
that, that again, may be a good, intrinsic good in and of itself, may or may not, that's debatable, but it's not the answer to Chinese coercive practices. Well, I think it's important to point out to you that when it comes to South Korea, I believe, at least in the Korean National Assembly conversations I had, members of that uh, legislative body, uh, that the retaliation for THAAD uh, cost around $12 billion right. to South Korea's economy, including right. Right. we still have cores. So I, I think you make an interesting point. Uh, I do want to get into, though, remedies. And, and I, Mr. Ratner, when you say that the foundations of U.S. leadership are strong, I think that's incredibly important. We, we shouldn't be, uh, you know, walking around with our heads down uh, on this. That's why I want to get into remedies. So, Mr. Blumenthal, and followed by Mr. Ratner, if you'd like to talk about some remedies that we should be pursuing, uh, how should we be uh, responding to denials of market access? How should we be responding to uh, theft and tr forced transfer of intellectual property? Uh, a lot of talk goes into reciprocity. Do, uh, is there an understanding of what reciprocity would look like and, the, and what effect it would have, or would the message be lost? Well, first of all, I disagree that there's no strategy. For the first time, the national security strategy mentioned China as a strategic competitor, had a big uh, part of it that's protecting the national innovation base. These tariffs are coming out of a Section 301 investigation that took a year and a half that was getting bipartisan acclaim. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, we, 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 and then next, next week, we're uh, unveiling a big free and open Indo Pacific strategy part of which is building resiliency in the, in the countries that uh, are most targeted. So there's nothing you can do if in Indonesia, for example, they're open to bribery except to build the rule of law in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. The Trans-Pacific Partnership can't do anything about that. that. That is the work that the State Department's going to roll out next week. What you can do remedy-wise is, again, go but out... But I do think strong standards, though, in agreements like TPP will help force people to... It could. By those it could. It could. But... but but it's also the work of uh, State Department, USAID, and things that you'll right. see rolled out next week in terms of resiliency within. Uh, any other strategies on top of that are obviously welcome. Um, but again, if we want to, uh, you know, the, the era of, of, to a certain extent, of strategies, or the, w, the, the Chinese broke the WTO. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was a response to a broken WTO. Um, the... The era of of more documentation is over. It's time to go after CCP entities that are benefiting. What should we do in the case of, uh, of denial of market access? So <clears throat> we should pick some of the, the companies that have benefited the most from IP theft or forced technology transfer. And, and through the enhanced CFIUS process that is already passing its way through the Congress and working with the Treasury, uh, deny them access to the U.S. market in coordination with the European market. That's how you get results from Xi Jinping. You target things that he cares about. Mr. Ratner. Uh, Senator, I guess one thing I would say, another thing that I mentioned in my testimony, written testimony, is that I do think it's important that as we think about any discrete China challenge, whether it's their predatory practices, the South China Sea, human rights, et cetera, what we need is a comprehensive strategy across the board. Um, and that's what we need, rather than simply sort of specific targeted responses only to these problems. So we need to be thinking about the, the entire pie here. And again, you, you stepped out of the room, but thank you for the legislation that you're leading on this. And it's important. And the fact that it is comprehensive across military and economic and human rights and governments, exactly what we need to be doing. So I would be thinking of these in terms of a, a comprehensive package. Um, but as it relates to the targeted piece, I completely agree with Dan. TPP is not the complete answer. It should be part of a, of a, of a broader um, answer set. I think the, I, I would start with investment restrictions. I think the fact that, as you know, the 301 
um, decision was meant to include potentially both tariffs as well as investment restrictions in the Treasury Department. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin came back with nothing on the investment restriction side, and I think that's quite disappointing, particularly as the new CFIUS reforms will take time to get implemented. So I would start with investment restrictions in whether it's related to reciprocal areas or areas that we're worried about for economic security or military security reasons. I think we ought to tighten up, as I know Congress is doing, our expert control laws so that American companies actually can't transfer their technology even if they, even if they want to. Um, I agree with Dan, we need to think about sanctions against companies that have benefited from IP theft. There's an executive order on the books that was put in place during the second, uh, Obama's second term that has not been used against Chinese companies, even though Treasury has packages ready to go, and, and I think it's uh, unacceptable that we haven't employed that executive order yet. Um, and I think we need to think about uh, regulations to diversify supply chains, and again, coordinating with our allies and partners. It's, it's going to take a whole bunch of, a whole suite of policies. But I do agree with Dan that the retaliatory tools are ones that we need to think about. And if, if China is threatening American airlines, then uh, our U.S. airlines, then we ought to have tools in our back pocket, uh, again, whether it's sanctions or uh, antitrust statutes or licensing agreements that we can say quietly to the Chinese, if you do that, we're going to do this. Uh, and until they see that, what, what incentive they have not to keep going down this road. So we need to be able to strike back in a way that's nimble and offensive. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, ZTE, President Trump says he wants to be tough on China, call him into account, but then uh, he tweets out, Commerce Department should find a way to give ZTE, quote, a, a way to get back into business fast. Uh, and that's despite the serious security issues that were raised by Trump uh, national security officials themselves, um, that uh, there were violations of American sanctions, widespread bribery committed by the company to expand its footprint. Um, for both of you, um, do you believe that China um, is going to, in fact, receive the wrong message um, by not imposing tough uh, measures on uh, ZTE uh, because of its, uh, you know, because of its allegedly closer, close relationship with President Xi, and as a result, uh, it's going to escape um, the types of sanctions that would have sent a strong message to the Chinese. Uh, economic sector, that no games are going to be allowed to be played in the future. Mr. Ratner or Mr. Blumenthal? Uh, DT is a big mistake. It's a, it's a violator of, of sanctions and also a threat to U.S. national security. But I think right now we're fo focusing a lot on the U.S. Um, reverberations from the tariffs not focusing enough on how much China's suffering and how much of a panic they're in about these tariffs. So I don't think she in any way views Trump as a partner on economics. I think they got idiosyncratically got passed got a pass on ZTE. But I think I think she very much views Trump as 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 somebody who's going to harm the harm the Chinese economy. If they can't export these goods, that's what their economic that's what their economy is based on. Uh, Mr. Ratner, I think Mr. It, Mr. Blumenthal thinks it's a mistake. Do you think it's a mistake? I think it was a mistake. I think it's important to send the message that uh, we're going to uh, implement our laws and, and hold these 
companies accountable. Um, I will say there are experts who have told me privately that uh, when it comes to ZTE, if we had taken that action, they would have reconstituted, reconstituted the company un under another name over which we would have no penalties and no control. And that it's actually better, uh, the devil you know is better than the devil that you don't know. Um, I don't know if that's a correct argument or not. I think it's worthy of consideration, but separate from that detail, I do think we should be, uh, we should be approaching this as a law enforcement matter. They, they violated export control laws and they ought to face punishment for it. And the, the idea that they can somehow buy their way out of these violations sends a really uh, disturbing signal. So um, what are the implications of this though? That uh, <clears throat> we're seeing this erosion of response from the West, including airlines, which are now all gonna be forced to change the way in which they designate landing in Taiwan. So what does that mean in terms of this never-ending inexorable pressure which China is applying in the private sector in order to uh, enhance its overall leverage and its relationship with everyone, including us? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I think the question of what does it mean for the future is the right question, because often in these, in these instances, the specific near-term economic consequence is not what matters. What matters is that down the road, countries or companies are gonna be self-deterred from standing up to China, and that's what I worry about. And I think we see that uh, every day of the week now in the South China Sea, it's what we see uh, on human rights, even in, in countries in Europe that should know better. I think there, as I said, there's been a chilling effect from this type of intimidation, and I think if the United States doesn't lead the way on standing up to it, then uh, we're only gonna see it get worse and worse as time goes on. All right, so for you, Mr. Blumenthal, um, uh, China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which aims to position China as the, quote, uncontested leading power in Asia, may further coerce its neighbors through loans that they can't replay for, uh, repay. So for example, in a highly publicized example, Sri Lanka's government struggled to make payments on the debt it had taken on as part of a deal with China. Under heavy pressure and after months of negotiations with the Chinese, the government handed over Hambantota port and 15,000 acres of land around it to a Chinese company partially owned by the Chinese government for 99 years. Transferring this land gives China control of territory near India and a strategically important commercial and military waterway. Uh, and this is but one example of what appears to be a growing trend around the world with regard to a Chinese uh, leveraging of their economic might as a way of then extracting concessions that have longer term profound implications. So what are the risks of increased debt burden amongst Company, uh, country, companies and countries receiving loans from the Chinese, Mr. Blumenthal? It, it's very high. Um, uh, I'd also point out, though, that BRI is a mixed bag for, for China. So China is incredibly indebted, probably 270, 280, something like that percent of GDP. And a lot of what BRI is is, is forcing debt-burdened Chinese state-owned enterprise is to go and invest or do construction in places that otherwise other countries wouldn't do uh, and draw down the foreign reserves to do so. So there's certain cases where we should just ignore and tell the Chinese, please go ahead, do construction in Pakistan as much as you would like. When it comes to strategic 
they placed countries like Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or certain countries in the Gulf, that's a different story because they are indeed trading investment on, on bad terms for those countries. Well, first for good terms, but then with a cost for access, strategic access, and for geostrategic space. Okay. Uh, Mr. Ratner? I would agree with most of that. I think, um, you know, again, the the Chinese are making progress with BRI in part because of, as a communication strategy and a, and a public relations win, and it's incumbent upon us to do some level setting about the facts on the ground. Um, that being said, I think it's important also that the United States put forward its own positive vision. I think the Trump administration, as I understand it, is thinking about ways to do that with the BUILD Act and strategic use of foreign assistance, and, and I'm hopeful that they'll come forward with some demonstration projects that put forward what uh, U.S. Uh, and Western development looks like in terms of being environmentally safe and anti-corruption and skills transfer and good governance and all these issues. So we need to put something forward in comparison. We can't just spend our time criticizing what they're doing out there. Okay, great. And uh, we thank both of the witnesses. And I, and I want to thank you again, Mr. Chairman, for your great work on the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. I think it's something that hopefully can bring our committee and uh, uh, the Congress together in, in backing before the end of the year. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Senator Markey. Thank you to the witnesses. I think uh, as we wrap this up, are you, do you have yes, a question? No, no. Yeah. Uh, I, I think just to, to leave the concern uh, that, that we started with, and that is what we can do to show U.S. leadership uh, to make sure that we don't fall behind. Uh, in recent writings in the Wall Street Journal, uh, quotes from uh, President Xi, China has its own ideas about how the world should be run, uh, and as he put it, to lead in the reform of global governance. Uh, another uh, quote, uh, or another statement, in at least eight African countries, as well as some in Southeast Asia, Chinese officials are training their counterparts in how to manage political stability through propaganda and how to control media and the internet, and that the China model provides a new option for other countries who want to speed up their development while preserving their independence. And finally this, China has committed to train 10,000 political elites in Latin America by 2020. All of this speaks to the need for what you have described, Mr. Ratner, what you have described, Mr. Blumenthal, is U.S. leadership and U.S. response. Uh, whether it's uh, the BUILD Act, whether it's legislation that Senator Young has described, the legislation that we have co-sponsored together, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, uh, this is a time for U.S. leadership. And it's a time to stand boldly for our values that have empowered the world to be a better place, that has lifted up hundreds of millions of people around the globe up and out of poverty uh, through a system of rules and standards that don't favor one country over another, but that give people a chance uh, to participate in global, uh, global governance and that global rise. So uh, now is the time for U.S. leadership. I thank both of you for uh, your time and testimony today. And I have a homework assignment here today somewhere. Um, if I can find my uh, closing script here. Uh, basically, we will keep the record open uh, till the end of the week. I think I'm screwing it up here. Uh, we're going to hold the record open uh, till, uh, till Thursday afternoon. Members have questions for the record. They'll submit them. I would ask for your uh, prompt response. They will be made a part of the record. And with that, uh, and the thanks to this committee, this hearing is adjourned.